You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Morning, everybody. How are we doing? Doing good. Okay, cool. Half asleep still. That's all right. That's all right. Got here too late for a coffee. That's okay. Welcome. It's so good to start the service with the kids in, wasn't it? Hearing them and, you know, seeing them. They weren't jumping off the stage. That'll be next week. They'll warm up and they'll be doing that. Uh, but it's good to have them together, uh, start together the service as we the restrictions have now eased more. We can fit more people in this room. So let's pray that more people come and, and fill in this first service. Well, we hope, uh, just if you're new or visiting or whatever, we hope you feel warmly welcomed to Harborside Church this morning. Well, we are in our second week in our new series. We've started a new series, going through the Gospels, looking at it's a, it's a um, uh, series called The Storyteller, looking at the parables of Jesus. The little earthly stories with heavenly meanings. They look like they're really simple, kind of on the surface, particularly the one we're looking at today. But the more you look at it, it's a bit more, I talked about it last week, it's a bit like a gobstopper. Did you eat them when you were a kid? These huge lollies that you'd be sucking on for hours. You'd be was red, and when you put it in there, an hour later, you pull out, it's green. And you know, my kids eat them. We hate them when they eat them because they last for so long, right? But it's a bit like that. Parables, you kind of, you suck on them, you chew on them. You know, it's a bit like, a, a, I love lamb cutlets. You know, I just like, you're gnawing on every little bit of juice. That are, parables are a bit like that. You chew on them. And as you chip away at them, more meaning comes away. Jesus loved to teach in parables. I think partly because of this reason, the message sort of seeped down into the heart and it began to sort of, to become alive more and more, the more you thought about it. So we're in this series called The Storyteller, looking at parables. Last week, Jesus urged us to be careful how we hear because really hearing is doing, right? Really understanding what the Bible teaches is applying it to our daily lives. The way we don't hear is not taking the truths of the gospel and inserting it into our everyday. And lots of parables, I think, therefore, are set in everyday settings. Have you noticed that? A farmer in his field, how do I deal with neighbours? Uh, how do you deal with family, all that kind of stuff, friends? Um, how do I deal with um, the workplace? But today is unique. It's different to all of the others. I wonder if you notice today's parable, it's set in a church. It's set in a religious setting. All the others about kind of the other six days, but this one, how does the gospel, what does it mean our faith in Jesus look like on a Sunday? And here's the confronting thing. <laughs> this has been smashing me all week as I've been preparing this. Here's the confronting thing about this parable. We're dealing with a really hard-hitting issue, pride. And it's to us, the church. So let's do some basic maths, okay? Let's put two and two together. Religious people can have a problem with pride. As you and me, people in the church, religious people can have a problem with pride. Does pride exist outside the church? Of course it does. I think we're living in the most graceless, unforgiving time of my life, at least, outside the church. But I don't want to spend too much time on that because that's easy to point out there, isn't it? Really easy. The context of the parable is there for a reason. It's set in a religious setting. We want to pick up on that. Church people can have a problem with pride. I think it's part of the reason why people outside the church can have such a problem with church. People kind of like Jesus. He's got a pretty good reputation. You know, if there was a survey, I think he'd do pretty well. The church, on the other hand, not so much. Why? I think this is part of the reason. Church people can have a problem with pride. 
this message is for us. It's to unclog our ears. So how are we going to hear this morning? You ready to hear? I think we need to pray. But let's do that together. Let's come before God and ask him to unclog our ears. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ability to gather together this morning. We're dealing with a difficult issue, a difficult topic, one hard to hear. So Lord, just help us to hear well. We invite your spirit right now to do its work amongst us. Reveal to us what we need to change and help us turn to you in repentance and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, let me address something I think that um, we've got to do every time we deal with a topic like this, pride. We don't think it applies to us. We don't think it applies. C.S. Lewis famously said, if you want to read a great chapter on pride, Mere Christianity is a very popular book he wrote years ago, but it's still very relevant. His chapter on pride is amazing. Read it, do yourself a favor. He famously said this, pride is something we loathe in other people and we're blind to see it in ourselves. We hate seeing it in other people. They're so arrogant. That person's so prideful. We hate seeing it in other people, but we find it hard to see it in ourselves. In fact, I think there's going to be some people thinking, boy, I'm glad so-and-so is in the room for this sermon. Don't do this to your partner, by the way. Don't be, it's not good. I'm glad so-and-so is in the room for this message. Or I wish so-and-so was in the room. I'm going to text them and get them to come to the latest service. Or I can't wait to get home and send them the link for this sermon. They're going to need to hear it. It's hard. But you know what? There's a hiddenness to pride. There's a hiddenness to pride that makes it particularly deadly. It's a silent killer. It's like blood pressure. You you can have really high blood pressure and not know about it. I was diagnosed with diabetes years ago. It was obvious. I lost so much weight. Everyone said, go to the doctor. I finally stubbornly took my time, but I finally went. It was obvious. Everyone could see I was sick. Blood pressure is different. It's kind of the silent killer. I'm saying this with a, with a doctor in the room. Is this right? Is it okay? okay? Just nod, please. Thank you. Okay, good. You don't, you, it can be killing you. You don't know it. You've got to get checked up. So let's all treat this like a spiritual health checkup. Should we do that together? I think we're all on the same boat with this. Consider this your spiritual health checkup. So let's dive into the passage that Pippi read so well for us. It starts out, verse 9, with Luke, the author of, Luke, of this story about Jesus' life, the biography of Jesus' life giving a bit of a sort of summary about why Jesus told this parable. Here it is, verse 9. It's the first verse that Pip read. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. I wonder if Jesus was sort of telling the parable and looking at, you know, when people do that, they tell us that it's really just talking about you. I wonder if that happened in this scenario. Hey, buddy, this one's for you. To those who are confident. And there's nothing wrong with confidence, is there? Like, it's something we encourage in our kids. I wonder if you do, you know, to be encouraging. You, you, you want to be, I, I remember being young and just being full of confidence, probably naively so. And the older I get, I feel like I'm losing some confidence. I wish I had more. Aren't you just envious of those people maybe in the workplace where they just ooze confidence? They can walk into any situation. They just own it. They're unfazed. I'm kind of jealous of those people. Confidence is good, right? And we're not necessarily bagging out confidence necessarily. Well, what are we talking about then? The issue here is what the confidence is in and what it produces. To some who are confident of their own righteousness, their own rightness, and look down on other people. This, my friends, is the ugly head of pride. Now, let me explain it just for a moment what we're talking about here, and then we'll move on to practically apply it. When we place our confidence in our own achievements as the basis for our standing with God, 
Right? That, that's the exact definition of the gospel of moralism. I stand right before God because of what I do. I don't think that's the problem for a lot of us. I think if you're from Sydney, you've been in churches for a long time or for a while, we get justification by faith. We get it. Maybe not many of us are going, this is why I'm accepted, God, because of what I do. Maybe that, if that's you, then this message is for you too. But I don't know if that's not my problem. That may not be yours. What is our problem then? More likely, we take our eyes off what Christ has done for us and in our everyday lives, seeking meaning, purpose, fulfillment, contentment for our daily lives in our achievements and what we do. How do we make ourselves feel like we're making it? How do we look in the mirror and, and be able to look at ourselves? How do we think my life is worth it? I am somebody. How do we answer that question? We don't look to Christ. We look at everything else. We look at our achievements. And how do we tell how we're doing with those achievements? We compare ourselves to each other. It's so easy to do. We compare ourselves to each other. And let me tell you, the result is not pretty. I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. Um, when we were in a rock band, I was over there for 10, uh, in a rock band for 10 years over in the States for six. We were on our first real tour of the US and we were very, very nervous and we just wanted to prove ourselves. And so we had this great opportunity. We were the opening band. There's the, the headline act and there's a support band and we were the opening band. And we were really nervous. We were just desperate to prove ourselves because no one really knew us. And so we went out there and just gave it absolutely everything in our live performances. And on this first tour... This support band, who had a decent reputation, had some great hit songs, they weren't that good live. They weren't great, well, in our opinion. They weren't. <laughs> <laughs> you see where this is going. They, they, did, they were good, but they just, I mean, they didn't push it like we did. And we felt, you know, in, in the lobby afterwards selling merchandise, more people would come to us. And, and so during this tour, at the end of this tour, we felt like kings. We're, we're, we're killing this. Then the next tour happened. You see where this is going. Say so we were still on the lowest in the pecking order. The next support band. I tell you what, I, I will never forget the first time I saw them play on the first night of that next tour. We were schooled in how to play live. I mean, this band, and now quite a very famous band, but they were still sort of starting out. They were amazing. They had hit songs, but they just connected live. They were incredible. The standing ovation at the end of their set it still chills me to my bone, right? <laughs> Now, how do you think we felt on that tour, at the end of that tour? We felt depressed. Compared to them, we felt like we were nothing. Right? We were living this emotional roller coaster because we were like, which mind pulling that door? Thanks. <laughs> I'm sure they're my kids. We were living this emotional roller coaster. Why? Because we relied on something so uncertain to determine our self-worth. Now, I'll be honest, it's... I hate it when pastors just share a struggle that was like 15 years ago. You know what I mean? Oh, that was so, I've mastered that now. I'll be honest with you, I have not mastered this. Basing my life on this emotional roller coaster of comparison. Recently, as you know, I've taken up cycling, really enjoying it. It's good fitness, it's good social stuff, it's good mental health, it's getting you out. It's, it, it can be a money pit. I mean, you can spend a lot of money, right, on cycling. It's one of those things where there's lots and lots of, um, there's always something else cool you can buy, right? My birthday's coming up. And if you, <clears throat> I, I didn't, uh, there it is. Okay, Pip's getting ready. Just a, a yeah, a voucher, wiggle.com.au. Thank you. Uh, anyway, a voucher would be great. Um, 
It's one of those things, but at the heart of it, like so many men's sports, right, or excuse me, sports in general, is competitive. Right? Cycling is particularly competitive, right? So this is me. You know, I go out, ride with a few different groups. One group's really fast. I mean, they're good. They've been cycling for a long time. And I'm, I've just got to psych myself up to ride with these people because they are fast. And I'm barely hanging on. They go, and I'm just, I'm lost. I fall behind. And their times are better than me. Their gear's better than me. And, you know, if I'm not careful, I can just go home after that and feel pretty down. Because compared to them, I'm not so good. But then comes the other group I ride with. <laughs> right, Rob's laughing because he's in that group. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Rob. But, you know, these guys, they're just getting back into cycling. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, being too honest here, aren't I? Uh, you know what? And it's they're not waiting for me. I'm waiting for them. You know, I, I'm getting up the hill, and okay, I'm not as puffed as them. And and if I'm not careful, I can leave. You know, cycling with them, feeling really good about myself. Why? Not necessarily because I had a great time cycling, but compared to them, I'm, at least I'm doing better. See, what would cause me to use something like music? like an awesome opportunity to tour in the U.S. or something great like cycling, what would cause me to twist something that can be so good into something unhelpful? You know what it is, it's one word, pride. But let's get deeper than that for a second. It's not just pride. It's not just pride. It's our hearts. The answer is my heart. My heart is so desperate to seek approval that I'll find it in the most unhelpful and stupid places. And it can end up ruining something as fun as cycling and using my cycling buddies just as a way to make myself feel better. You see where we're going with this? Now, it may not be music, it may not be cycling for you, but what is it for you? Just insert whatever it is. See, C.S. Lewis, again, famously said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. It's a comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. You see, Jesus knows this about our hearts. And so he introduces us to two men who play this out. Let's dive into a parable. Long introduction this morning. Don't worry, shorter content. Let's have a look at, quickly at this parable. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And there are similarities between these two men, both Jews both want to worship God, they both go to pray, but there are profound differences. Let's look at the Pharisee first. Now, if you've been in church circles for a while, you'll have no problem seeing the religious people, the Pharisees of the New Testament day, as the bad guys. That is not how they were viewed in their day. They, they were viewed with utter reverence. They were the good guys in many ways, totally respected. That, and Jesus reserves the harshest things he says to these kind of people. You imagine how that would have heard in its original setting. They were utterly revered, seen as very close to God, ultimately trying to worship God in the way they thought best. So what's the problem here? I think the content of his prayer, the posture of his prayer, is what Jesus is trying to highlight to us. Verse 11, the Pharisee, this religious man, stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get. 
Now, it's easy to quickly condemn this man. It is. Especially as Australians, we're so egalitarian. We don't like anyone placing themselves above. So it's easy for us to quickly condemn this man. But he's thanking God. Did you notice it? He is thanking God. And he's doing stuff that God would like, right? He's fasting. He's going without food. He's giving. These are things that the Bible commends. So what's going on here? What does Jesus want us to see about his prayer? It's where he's looking. It's where he's looking. You see, a godly prayer might be, I know God, compared to you and your holy law, I'm a long way off. But thank you for the changes you're making in my life, for the work of the Spirit in my life. I feel my temper going, my anger dissipating. It's not what he says. See, the Pharisee's not really, it's weird. He's a man of God, a religious guy, always thinking about what the right thing to do. But in this instance, he's not really interested in God and his standard, but only in how he looks compared to others. Where is he looking? What does he say? Thanks, I'm not like this tax collector. That's where he's looking. Compared to him, I'm doing great. You know why we do that? Because we don't have to do the hard work of looking inwardly. We look outwardly, how am I doing? Compared to them, pretty good. I'm fine. This is why pride, this is hard to hear. <laughs> this is why pride can be such a problem in church. Because it flourishes where there are standards. It doesn't flourish where anything goes. See? Where there are rules, where there are clear things you can do in order to be seen doing well. It's a problem for moral people. It feeds on our goodness. It needs standards to survive. This poisonous weed flourishes in the church often because the fertilizer of the gospel of moralism is preached regularly, right? We can learn that being a good Christian means ticking certain moral boxes. And if that becomes the focus, we take our eyes off Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, and we focus on what we're doing, behavior modification, what I'm doing. And then how do we... Tell how we're doing, we compare ourselves to others. It's so easy. And let me tell you, those churches where that is present, they can be toxic places. This is why this message is for us. I think this is part of the reason people outside the church struggle to be in a church context. They, f- context. they feel the fingers of judgment. That's why some people leave. I'll be, I'll be real honest. I'll be, share something about my past here. You know, my family and I, we grew up in the local church. And I think it was a good church. I was young at the time, but it was a, I think it was a good church. But my parents divorced. I was pretty young and my dad left. No one ever saw, really saw him again. And my mum struggled to stay. Why? This very reason. Now, I'll admit that divorce in the 80s, it was probably harder to deal with you know, people didn't know what to say. It was awkward. How do I, maybe something has gone wrong here. How do I love this person? I don't know if it was poor leadership around this issue, but and so I, I want to have grace on both sides in remembering. But I have no doubt good, moral, righteous people who served on, on Kids Church, who were on the roster, who were pillars of that community, looked down on her and she knew it. Why? How do we know that, how do we tell that we're doing okay? Well, at least, I'm, at least my marriage is still together. Like, no one would ever say that, but what goes on inside our hearts and our minds? 
It's just so easy, isn't it, to look at other people to determine our self-worth because it's so present, it's so tangible. You're all right there. You don't have to exercise faith. And in doing so, like I've said, we avoid the hard work of examining our own hearts. I mean, let's just be honest for a second here. How many of us, when we hear of someone in trouble, we hear of a moral failure, we hear of a marriage in trouble, we, you fill in the blank, hear of a, you know, someone not being a good friend, we don't reach out the, the hand of love and care, but we point the finger of judgment in our minds. I mean, can you admit to yourself that it feeds a sick part of our hearts that takes pleasure in the misfortune of others because compared to them, geez, at least I'm, I'm doing okay then. I don't have to worry about dealing with the junk of my life because, um, I mean, it, that's just what gossip and slander is, right? It, it's pride. We pick apart people. We undress people to make ourselves feel better. I mean, in a religious context, it can flourish. Satisfy our black hearts. Ooh, I told you this was going to hurt this morning. <sighs> what do we do? Friends, this is not about condemnation. We're going to get there. Let me ask you. Let's keep going. Let me ask you. Are you jealous of those who are better than you in some areas? Are you easily defensive when someone criticizes you? Do you find it hard to say sorry? Do you find it difficult to hang out with people who disagree with you? Are you waiting for that person to make the first move in the conflict that you're in at the moment? They can come to me. These are all telltale signs of pride. So what do we do? How do we get out of this? Let's keep moving in our passage today. Verse 13, but the tax collector, let's introduce ourselves to the next character in the story. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Tax collector stood at a distance, far away from the other morally kind of superior people. He wouldn't even look to heaven. He knows he's got no moral leg to stand on. But he beat his breast. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's remember for a second, let's not romanticize this character. Right? Tax collectors were scumbags. They were. They were hated back then. I mean, collaborators with the Romans, right? They were traitors. They lined their pockets with the extra money. They scammed off people. Imagine Nazi collaborators. And you're kind of getting on the same level of what people felt about these characters. Let's not romanticize him. He was a scoundrel. Hated. The fact that Jesus commends this man, it is shocking. It's scandalous. Why does he? What we have here is a picture of humility and repentance. Where did he look? Remember where the Pharisee looked? At the tax collector. Where does this guy look? He can't even look to heaven. He knows God's moral standards are far superior to his. He's under no illusions compared to God that he's doing well. He knows he's in trouble. The Pharisee doesn't have that heart posture because he's looking at someone else unaware of the condition of his heart, right? But in the light of God's perfection, the tax collector knows he's toast. So what does he do? Try and scrounge up, well, at least I've done this. He knows he can't do that. So at least he knows enough about God to approach him on the basis of who he is. He cries for mercy because God is a God of mercy. 
He beats his breast. Now, why is that in the story? Men often didn't do this. This is reserved for women at funerals. This is a really intense expression of repentance and brokenness. I am broken. Friends, that's what what we need. That's what you need. That's what I need. We need brokenness. You see, there's no way you can look at Jesus Christ and pray like the Pharisee. You can't do it. You can't do it. Because in him, what do we see in Jesus Christ? We see the ultimate righteousness of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That's what we see. There's no other way for you and I to be saved than for him to go to the cross. That's his perfect justice. You can't get away from that. You can't skim over that, oh, no, can't God just forget? No, 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 you're so sinful that the Jesus Christ, the God, man, had to die for you, confronting. You can't pray like the Pharisee and look to Jesus Christ and know that you can't do it. But at the very same time, when we look to Jesus Christ, we see his perfect justice. We also see his love, his tenderness, his compassion, his arms open on the cross to receive you. Come, all who would seek forgiveness. You cannot exalt yourself and look down on others when you do that. It's impossible. Because doing this, looking at Christ when we pray, it produces grateful, loving obedience and changes the way we relate to people. Think about this. The Pharisee, who was he? He was God's man, God's representative in his people. He was supposed to be God to these people. What did the Pharisee see in the courtyard of the temple? He saw a brother broken, didn't he? Crying, beating his breast. What did he do? Did he cross the courtyard and and extend the arm of love and grace? No, he extended the finger of judgment. He used him as a tool to make himself feel better. When we compare ourselves to other people, we reduce them, don't we? Into things that just feed our pride. We dehumanize. We, We separate. But Jesus Christ changes all of that. And the only way... We change the figure of judgment into the hand of love is to have our hearts melted by grace. It is the only way. See, when we compare our marriages with others, it doesn't make our marriage better. When we compare how much of a better friend we are than others, it doesn't make us better friends. It makes us harder to be around. People won't want to approach us because we're not filled with compassion but judgment friends. You cannot look down on someone if you place Excuse me. You can only look down on someone if you place yourself above them. Let me tell you about someone who had the ultimate right to look down on you and I. Jesus Christ, the God-man. I mean, think about it. The sinless, perfect Son of God. It doesn't get higher than that. Looking from heaven to earth, who had the ultimate right to look down on you and I. Jesus doesn't get higher and that doesn't get more morally pure than having never sinned. Yet did Jesus Christ look down on you and I in this way? Does he look down on you and I in this way? No, friends, he left his heavenly home. He left his throne to come face to face with us. He didn't just cross a courtyard like the Pharisee could have. He traversed the greatest distance you can ever imagine. 
from heaven to earth. Why? Not to look down on you, but to come face to face with you, to lift your face, to see his perfect justice and his loving kindness and his limitless grace. When this melts our heart, we cannot but help extend the hand of loving grace and love to our fellow human being. When this changes our heart, you are unable to look down on someone else. You realize how sinful you are, someone had to die, and how loved someone was willing to do it. Friends, may we turn our eyes away from others in comparison and look to Christ. Yes, we'll be dazzled by his infinite holiness, but may we also remember the goodness of the gospel, that in him we can approach the throne of grace. Well, what better way to meditate on what justified the tax collector, what justifies you and I before God than to celebrate in the Lord's Supper together this morning? That's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate communion and invite the band to come.